1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
0: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
0: podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, panic at the pump and long gas lines, all because of the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. We'll talk about challenges in trying to prevent foreign
2: disruptors. So we have a history of um, building technology and then thinking about security a lot later. If you look at the Internet, and that's exactly what we did. We said, hey, we got these two computers, these few computers in California that can talk to each other. It's just great. Let's scale this thing and, and get to billions and billions of people. And then somebody started doing things that were nefarious and they said, wait a minute. That conversation in just a few minutes. But we'll
0: begin with this. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says her office will seek the death penalty against Robert Long, charged with killing eight in three area massage spas back in March. Six of those that were killed were Asian women. D.A. Willis also announced a hate crime against Long. The indictment was handed down yesterday in Fulton County and includes four counts of murder, aggravated assault, domestic terrorism, and possession of a weapon during the commission of a felony. In a statement from Stephanie Cho, the executive director of Asians Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, reads in part, quote, our communities in Georgia and especially the victims families are still grieving. Our work ahead, our work ahead continues to center healing, care and reimagining justice for our communities, close quote. In other court news, the three men charged in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery appeared in federal court yesterday on hate crimes. Father and son Greg and Travis McMichael and William Roddy Bryan pleaded not guilty to hate crime and attempted kidnapping charges. The McMichaels pleaded not guilty to weapons charges. All are due in state court today. As we shift to the coronavirus here in Georgia, no more will you need to make a COVID-19 vaccine appointment. Pharmacies at local grocery stores will take folks on a walk-in basis, and that includes Publix. However, it is recommended to call ahead to make sure they're in supply. Georgia is now at a 29% vaccination rate, and according to the State Department of Health, more than 6.6 million doses have now been administered. And add another one to be Atlanta's next mayor. Councilmember Antonio Brown, he's now running. And there should be more by the end of the week. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Executives with the Alpharetta, Georgia-based Colonial Pipeline are optimistic about returning to full operation by the end of the week. The recent cyber attack caused Colonial Pipeline to shut down 5,500 miles of fuel pipe in response to the incident. And a statement on their website reads, quote, Colonial Pipeline continues to make forward progress in our around-the-clock efforts to return our system to service with additional laterals operating manually to deliver existing inventories to markets along the pipeline, close quote. Meanwhile, U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm had a message yesterday for consumers regarding panic at the gas pumps. One other warning, I guess, uh, let me emphasize that much as there um, was no cause for, say, hoarding toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic, there should be no cause for hoarding gasoline, uh, especially in light of the fact that the pipeline should be substantially operational by the end of this week and over the weekend. Not sure many folks were listening because the images and videos tell a different story. Also, reports of many Atlanta area gas stations are running low or simply out until further notice. And there was something else that Energy Secretary Granholm talked about. At the same time, it certainly is a reminder that we need to take a hard look at uh, how we need to harden our necessary infrastructure, and that includes cyber threats. And as Ann Neuberger, who was here yesterday and told you, this administration is taking an all-hands-on-deck approach to uh, enhancing our cyber defenses. Of course, Colonial Pipeline is not the first major U.S. corporation to be hit with a ransomware attack, but the question remains, can these cyber attacks be prevented? In this case, the ransomware gang taking responsibility identifies as dark side and is believed to be based in Russia. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Georgia Tech's dean in the College of Engineering, Raheem Bia. Dean Bia, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you again.
2: Yeah, good to be here again, Rose. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, in the clip we play with Energy Secretary Granholm, she referenced how the U.S. needs to, as she put it, harden, its necessary infrastructure against cyber attacks. But Dean, I, I tell you that that appears to be easier said than done.
2: No, that, that's a really good point. So uh, I actually do research in this area. I have for uh, about a decade or so. Um, and and I, I, I believe so much in this area that I, I started a company called Fortify Logic about four years ago. Uh, and when I was doing research, I was working with lots of partners and I would be out in various facilities and monitoring the networks and systems. And you know, we were alarmed about um, just how insecure and how antiquated the protocols and, and technologies that were used in these systems. So my rule of thumb is that these IT uh, OT networks, which are operational tech ne- uh, technology networks, the OT networks are probably about 10 to 20 years behind our IT networks, our business networks that we, we use. So, there's a lot to secure these systems and it, it's not trivial to do.
0: How did we get so far behind in this area of technology?
2: So we have a history of um, building technology and then thinking about security a lot later. If you look at the internet, and that's exactly what we did. We said, hey, we got these two computers, these few computers in California that can talk to each other. It's just great. Let's scale this thing and, and get to billions and billions of people. And then somebody started doing things that were nefarious and they said, wait a minute, people might actually misuse this technology. And so let's layer security on top of that. So we did that with the internet and uh, we've, we've done it with lots of other technologies you'll see in in the IoT space, for example, there are lots of really cool features out there, mm-hmm. with really cool technologies, um, but security has been an afterthought.
0: And we know that Colonial Pipeline is certainly not the first major corporation to be attacked in recent years. We know of Equifax, Target, and even the city of Atlanta Dean, it appears that there's not just one method, these, I guess we call them cyber gangs use to gain access to these entities network, or is it something that is very simple and corporations just aren't, as you mentioned just a moment ago, just aren't thinking about it to that extent?
2: So it, it actually is, um, it's, it's asymmetric war, if you will. It's actually very difficult to uh, to defend uh, systems, right? So if you think of networks If you think about um, a network or system as like a house, right, Um, you got a lot of windows and doors, Mm -hmm. and it's a lot harder to be able to guard all of those all the time. And so you'll find that there are different ways to get into these systems from things like, oh, here's a a patch that, that didn't occur, so there's a vulnerability that's there, a buffer overflow exploit, something like that, or it's just individuals, It's, I tricked this individual into plugging in this thumb drive, or, hey, you know what, the same password that you use to to log into YouTube, you use that for the the main workstation at your job, and maybe I've cracked the password that you logged in for your social experience, and now I can leverage that uh, for your company. And so it's actually not trivial to do this.
0: But if we keep seeing that a majority of these ransomware attacks are foreign disruptors, Does the United States, and do we just not have enough cybersecurity corporations and and companies that can block this from even hitting a U.S. company? I don't know if I I answered that question perfectly. I'm not an IT person or a technology person, so you can laugh if you want to. No,
2: no. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, so it, it does, Rose So there are a couple things, right? So first, um, there's a, a tremendous shortage of cybersecurity professionals in the country and even globally, right? So tremendous. And actually, when when we spoke a few years ago, that was part of our motivation at Georgia Tech for creating the online master's in cybersecurity program because at that time, it they predicted. It was about two million or so, uh, sort of global workforce shortage in this field. So that's number one. It's it's we don't have enough folks in this in this field, and we got to make sure that we do that. Uh, other ways that we can reduce the likelihood. Uh, you know, it's it's unlikely that we'll, we'll we'll stop it. It's just it's such a very difficult problem, but we can reduce the likelihood of these attacks by doing a number of things. And uh, one is 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 really focusing on technology and exactly what you just mentioned earlier, patching. Patching is so important, uh, but the, the problem is, it's complicated in systems that are these OT systems, these operational technology systems, because it's been, it's in the past, some patches have have actually caused systems to become unstable. And so what happens, you will you download a patch, but you will say, well, you know what, let me hold off on installing it because I don't want to bring down the power grid by installing the patch, right? But we got to do a better job of patching our systems the other thing that we have to do is monitor these systems a lot more. And so in the IT world, uh, we actually are monitoring systems a lot. But when we move over to the OT space, again, the, the technology that operates the physical process, uh, we don't monitor. And that's why it's really important to make sure we monitor those systems. The last thing I would say that that we we have to do a better job of doing is these the utilities have to share information. And so if... Company X gets attacked. We got to be able to share that information so we can protect company Y, company Z, and others.
0: If the U.S. alone, obviously the FBI and their cyber unit, they can't work alone, you see this as an international effort that nations have to work together to somehow combat these cyber gangs.
2: Well, I I would start um, really at home first with um, public-private partnership. And so I would I would start with our, our federal government doubling down and working really hard with our uh, public companies that are providing the services to help secure and also those that that need the services and and one thing that they can do is help with the whole sharing process that I just mentioned. So I would start with let's build this coalition at home first, and then absolutely we can have you know other partners that we trust outside of the U.S. to help uh, secure these systems.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Georgia Tech's Dean in the College of Engineering, Rahim Bia, and we're talking about the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. The FBI, through their assessment, cites the cyber gang responsible for the Colonial Pipeline hack, Darkside, as I'm using their term, relatively new. If that's true, how concerning should that be that they were able to breach a major corporation like Colonial Pipeline?
2: Yeah it's for me it's it's uh it's not a surprise um so the interesting uh part about darksat to me is that they are a uh, provide this hacking as a as a service uh so it, and they're not they, they have this client who is behind the actual attack they just provided the the capabilities of of doing this and this is something that we predicted actually for years was was going to uh, increase so it's not To me, it's not that surprising, especially knowing how insecure our critical infrastructure is.
0: Now, neither one of us know the type of malware detection or cybersecurity protocols Colonial Pipeline had in place, but I'm willing to bet it's being upgraded.
2: That's for sure. <laughs> I think so, <laughs> and I, and honestly, I, I hope that that not just colonial, but other folks are looking like, man, this this really can happen. It can happen in the U.S. and it can be extremely disruptive. And I, so I hope it's not just them, but other folks are paying attention.
0: And Dean, I was also reading that you know there are various types of cyber attacks. There are network attacks, wireless, malware, social engineering. Do you think a lot of people are even aware just how vulnerable whether you're someone like me that has a simple Wi-Fi connection at home or major corporation, do you think enough is out there in terms of what people need to know and be aware about these different types of, of cyber attacks?
2: I think in, in, in short, the answer is no. Um, folks are not aware. And um, it, it's, it's, you know, you have two groups of folks, one folks that have been attacked and they know it and folks that have been attacked, but they don't know it, right? That's it, right? So everybody is going to experience something like this. And and so that's why I think it's even care- you've got to be careful with um, even casting stones about colonial, right? What happened to them? Yes, it is a big deal um, and it, it's borderline, of course, catastrophic at this point, but it can truly happen to any other organization. And uh, so that's, uh, I think it's important to, to appreciate that even organizations that have more resources, it takes that one person that, plugs in a thumb drive or that sh- that shares a password. Uh, and this sort of thing can happen. Exactly, exactly. Or clicks on, yeah, exactly, on the link on the email. So we got to do a better job with, with training. And, you know, even my company, for example, Fortify Logic does training for industrial security. But then if you want deeper expertise, we'll hold masters in cybersecurity in the space at Georgia Tech online that you, could, that you can take that gives you expertise in the, the industrial security space.
0: You mentioned earlier that the U.S. could be maybe a decade plus behind in terms of technology. But here's a different question, I think. How far ahead are these hackers in finding new ways to launch these cyber attacks?
2: right and 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 just to clarify it it i don't think it's necessarily the us is, is behind it's that the um the the field of ot security operational security is behind that of it security and so you go to a company their it networks are secured much more than the the ot networks even though in this case the it network was the one <laughs> that was that was compromised and and made them say all right well you know what let me shut down the ot network to be uh to be cautious Hackers are smart. They are uh, very smart. It's, it's asymmetric, and I will argue that we are not winning uh, this, this, this sort of war in, in, uh, in cyberspace.
0: Clearly, there's no way to prevent a cyber attack. The best way is to have the best defense you can have. Is that what you're saying? To minimize the severity of the, the attack or to catch it before it severely compromises the infrastructure of the, the company or whomever. Is that what
2: you're saying? So securing cyberspace is um, an extremely difficult problem, and uh, folks have put it up with things like like curing cancer, like it's that level difficult, right? So it is a big deal, and so what we have to do is train folks. We got to have the right technology in place, and by and we got to do things like pack, patching and do all these best best practices. And if we do that, then you will increase the, or reduce the likelihood of an attack, but prevention, a uh, permanent prevention, I think is highly unlikely.
0: Dean, do we have the technology to trace and pinpoint where the hack comes from?
2: So that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are, uh, I, I feel like I, I paid you to ask that question, Rose. So there, there are researchers at Georgia Tech that are working on that right now. And, and that whole concept that you mentioned is called attribution. And so there are large DARPA projects uh, that some of the researchers inside of uh, my college right now are doing on a a very large scale. So we do have that that capability, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that the U.S. is investing in that area.
0: You mentioned a moment ago as we wrap up, because Georgia Tech, you all offer an online cybersecurity certification. I think this summer, later this summer, you'll have a session virtually. How popular has this field become for you all at Georgia Tech?
2: Oh, the, the field—it's—it's it's booming. Uh, we, collectively, on on both sides, so the the academic side, and we also have GTRI, the Georgia Tech Research Institute, that has 2,500 research faculty. But anyway, be, between both sides at Georgia Tech, we have hundreds, literally, of researchers in uh, in the cybersecurity space. Our programs are just, just you know, just about to explode, and that's one of the reasons we said, let's go online, because what that allows us to do is to take not focus on class size classroom you know actual buildings but now we can take every um individual that has the expertise that has the background and so when i when i came to talk to you a few years ago rose it was we i don't think we'd even launched. we had just launched a program and within a year and a half now two years we have about a thousand students already in this program so it's uh it's moving pretty fast and we we're continuing to grow
0: if someone out there listening thinks that maybe you know this I just have two or three people in my IT department but they will probably be a good candidate who is a good candidate to take this online certification
2: yeah so that's right so it, it actually is um, uh, online master so it's a it's a it's a it's a full degree um, in three different specializations policy cyber physical system security and traditional uh, info security but it's individuals that have a background in that area so people that have sort of a computing background IT background but also folks that that don't have a background in that area but just have a sincere interest and and I think what we're going to have to do because we have this tremendous shortage is that we can we can't solely focus on folks that are got computer science under, undergraduate degrees or computer engineering undergraduate degrees we got to be able to convert folks and you know people that are changing careers that are just really bright we welcome those folks as well into our program. And we have many now that don't have engineering or computing backgrounds, but will get a master's in cybersecurity.
0: Dean, I want to get your thoughts on this. And this will be just your personal, through your personal lens here, because we know that some companies or organizations have paid the ransomware. They may not want to admit it or you know, admit it publicly because they, they would need to get their information back or they need to have access to their information. But because that, happens, that's why there are continued attacks. But can you understand a company organization feeling like they have no other course, but to pay the ransomware from your background, you probably say no, they shouldn't do that. But if you're holding customers, personal information and in files.
2: Oh yeah. 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 So I, I don't listen. I, I don't, I don't have a firm, um, opinion uh, about that, to be honest. I think there's been instances where many instances where um, the the attackers have shown goodwill, if you will, and and they honored what they said, if you pay me, I'll give you your files back. And if if this is a, a hospital, and you got you know patient files that you need. I mean, I, it, let's not take a, a position that we never negotiate. No, let's make sure that we our customers, our patients are safe, right? So, I I think you got to make that call depending on uh, the, really the best business decision um, for the organization. But I don't I don't I don't have a firm position one way or the other.
0: I can imagine it's a, a very difficult uh, situation. Not to mention the liability also that an organization opens itself up to. Uh, finally, Dean, what are you paying attention to with this particular recent cyber attack on Colonial Pipeline?
2: Well, it's 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 getting closer, and you know we had this first uh, attack, first popular attack a, a decade ago called Stuxnet, which you know caused physical damage to uh, Iranian centrifuges, um, and this was you know malware software that caused destruction to uh, centrifuges, and from that point you've seen this uptick. And attacks on these, these industrial systems. And so I'm I'm worried that, and, and I want to point out this attack was bad, but it was nowhere near as bad as it could have been. Mm-hmm. So it actually stopped from what we know at the IT network, and they just happened to shut down the OT systems, right? The next level, which will happen, we actually you know, talked about this four years ago at, at RSA, um, is the ransomware affecting the OT network itself and being able to control the physical process, being able to control the, the, the amount of chlorine that goes into our water to clean it or the, the velocity of the fluid going through the pipeline. That is coming. And so as I look at this disruption that we have here, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that folks are really paying attention and they appreciate that it is nowhere near as bad as it could have been. Wow.
0: Georgia Tech's Dean in the College of Engineering, Rahim Bia. Dean Bia, thank you so much for taking the time as always. Good conversation.
2: Thanks for having me, Rose.
0: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 2020, the year of the pandemic, but also the year of hunger, as a new report spearheaded by the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University revealed one in four faced food insecurity. It's not uncommon that public and private partnerships come together to address issues such as food insecurity. Cortland, a multifamily real estate investment management company, And Move for Hunger, a national hunger relief nonprofit, are joining forces to launch a hunger relief program of its own that also has a sustainability lens. And joining me now to talk more about it is Madeline Robertson, a sustainability analyst with Cortland. Madeline, thanks for taking the
1: time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Rose.
0: Let's begin here because Cortland is a real estate investment management company, but uh, what is your role as a sustainability analyst?
1: It's a great question, Rose. So I am a part of our sustainability team. We sit under operations. So we're looking at how we have our environmental footprint. You know, What kind of systems do we have in place to have efficient utilities? And we're also doing our sustainability benchmarking. So we're looking at what our entire ESG, environmental social governance footprint is. So we're evaluating that this year so that we can go forward and make some targets for reductions, And align ourselves with a roadmap for how we want to be in a sustainability sense for overall of Cortland.
0: I can imagine someone listening, saying, well, as a real estate investment management company, is there a roadmap for you all to follow? How do you assess what you need to do in that area?
1: It's a good question. So there are a couple different frameworks that we can go off of. We're also reporting for the first time to GRESB, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. So not only does GRESP help us to figure out where we are in terms of our environmental social governance impact, but at the end, it has a scorecard and it ranks you against peers in your group. So you can see how you're doing. There's also best practices because most people publish their reports or they you know, put out their goals on their websites and you can see what other people are doing and figure out what it looks like for your own organization. And that's, that's what we're doing this year at Cortland. This is our benchmarking year.
0: And Cortland is headquartered here in Atlanta. How many communities or properties do you all own or operate?
1: So overall, across the U.S., we're mostly in the Sunbelt region. We're in nine states. And here in Atlanta or in Georgia, we have 30 communities and about 13,000 apartment homes. So we do have a large footprint here in Atlanta. It's it's our home base.
0: Are most of these considered high-end accommodations?
1: They're considered market rate. Uh, homes. And we provide a, a high value to our, our associates and our residents by having wonderful customer service. And we, we really excel in the social aspect of environmental social governance impact because we love giving our residents a above and beyond apartment home experience.
0: So besides the pool, y'all have like bocce ball, stuff like that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have a bunch of different resident events. We also have in-house like a resident experience specialist and the whole team dedicated to not just you know a residence it we look at the physical health we provide fitness programs we Mm -hmm. mental health we look at how we can connect with our community and really try to go above and beyond in everything that we do
0: where were you all when i moved to Atlanta? (laughs) Uh, let's talk about this partnership with move for hunger how did this come about
1: this a partnership I'm incredibly excited about. My, my manager, Bridget, found a video of, I think it was in one of those little one-minute Facebook videos about them, mm-hmm. and she brought it to our team, and we were just incredibly excited. And so I reached out to them and said, you know, we, who we are, we'd love to partner with you. We have 200 apartment communities. What does that look like? And pretty immediately, we got the ball rolling, and we were able to announce the partnership on, on Earth Day We're in the training process now for our on-site teams. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to have all the information and necessary materials on-site for the residents to be able to participate.
0: And we should note Move for Hunger is a national hunger relief nonprofit. You are going to be focusing on food insecurity as, as an issue here. So how will this work? How will you get your residents and your communities involved?
1: Our residents will be able to participate in the program year round. We also have something that our amazing resident uh, engagement specialist Dorothy puts out every month called a monthly mood boost. So it'll, they'll be able to have reminders on how to participate. We also have an awesome in-house graphic design team of Ginger and Kim who did this awesome program flyer. So they'll have materials to reference about the program. And then if they ever want to bring a couple cans from the grocery store into their leasing office, they're able to do that. On-site teams can hold big food drives throughout the year. We have an account specialist, Kara, who's wonderful and helps us facilitate all of that as well.
0: So each community or property will be able to choose their own program or their own initiative to be involved in?
1: Yes. Move for Hunger provides different suggestions for different food drives and they theme them throughout the year. But the great part is we have incredible community managers and we encourage them to be creative with this if they have a certain area that they'd like to focus on, or if they want to build a can castle and put all their cans into something that is visible on site or whatnot, they can, they can do what they want to with this program.
0: Madeline, do you have a, a list of those food banks that will be receiving the food through this partnership?
1: Yes, absolutely. Here in Atlanta, the food will be going to the Atlanta Community Food Bank, the Georgia Food Bank Association, ICNA Relief Food Pantry, and Fountain of Hope.
0: And let's talk about how this ties into, I guess, more of a sustainable way to combat food insecurity. What's the connection here?
1: That's a great question. So food insecurity is an incredible problem that we're facing today. And just in Georgia alone, 1.5 million people are food insecure. And in terms of sustainability, there are a thousand different ways you can go, especially in multifamily. And we wanted to start off this program with something that Cortland already truly values which is combating homelessness and 10,000 people in Georgia are homeless. So it's it's not mutually exclusive for food insecure and homelessness but we feel that if we are putting more awareness and resources towards you know, giving food to the food banks in, in Atlanta and making that more accessible hopefully people will have more opportunities to get the food that they need, and then maybe they can uh, feel that support from us and put the money that they do have towards their housing or they can try to rebalance, but we just wanna be that good neighbor and help out in any way that we can.
0: You and I both know that hunger, not only here in Atlanta, Georgia, but throughout the nation is a continuing crisis. How committed is Cortland to continue this food and secure partnership?
1: We are entirely committed. So we signed up, it's an annual program. And what's great about it is we, is Move for Hunger helps us to track how many pounds of food and how many meal equivalents that each community has donated. So since we signed up around Earth Month this year, next year we'll be able to say, look, Cortland residents, look at what you did. This has been amazing. We, you know, this community donated this many food food (laughs) meal equivalents and, and so forth. We are entirely committed. We think that this is an incredible partnership and will have a wonderful positive impact in each of the cities where we have have apartment home communities.
0: And when does this launch? When does it officially kick off?
1: We officially announced the partnership on Earth Day, but we are in the training process and we hope to have the materials all on site and all of our residents notified and excited about the program, hopefully in the next couple of weeks.
0: And the feedback so far from your property managers, they're all excited? They are willing to also get involved with this initiative?
1: Yes, absolutely. I've tuned into the training webinars and we've had some great feedback. People are excited about the opportunity to be creative with this and also to engage the residents in such a positive way.
0: Often we hear that when it comes to tackling issues such as food insecurity or or hunger, we always hear about public-private partnerships. And from Cortland's perspective, how important is this that you all have a partnership like this?
1: I think this is incredibly important because Move for Hunger is a very respected nonprofit. They work to facilitate the partnerships with the different moving companies that take the food from the community to the local food bank. They also vet the local food banks to make sure that we're giving giving food to a place that will distribute equitably and will be a, a resource for local communities. So We feel that we are best able to serve the local community when we have a partnership like Move for Hunger, where they have the expertise, they have the infrastructure, and we'll be able to have a a higher degree of a positive impact since we are partnering with them. They're they're incredibly mission-driven people, too, and they're, they're wonderful to work with.
0: Madeline Robertson is a sustainability analyst with Cortland. It's a real estate investment management company. And we've been talking about their partnership with Move for Hunger. Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information.
1: Thank you so much, Rose.
0: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a quote attributed to one of the early entertainers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Lillian Russell. And she quipped, quote, there's a time to open up a new chapter in life and to explore a larger center, close quote. Well, for the past few years on this program, in the month of May, I've had conversations with local area graduates about their journeys and hopes for the future and exploring a new chapter in life. Well, today's graduate profile is from Emory University. It's Suman Malapati, and he has a new chapter. Suman, thank you for taking the time and congratulations.
3: Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Let's begin here because there's this line on your Twitter account and it reads, doctor becoming a civil rights lawyer, Emory Law 21. So I have to ask you, how does it feel finishing law school?
3: It, uh, it feels great, really. It's, it's been a great three years. Um, so I'm, I actually have enjoyed being back in school. It's, uh, it's one of those things where you know, I, might, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed this as much if I'd done this right out of law, right at a, you know, undergrad or, you know, in my twenties. But after, you know, being in the working world, it, it really is was fun to come back to school and think about things, you know, in a really just intellectual way. Um, so I've enjoyed school, but it's, it is
0: nice to be done. It's been a busy, you know, three years too. Let's back up a little here because before law school, you had a whole nother career. Pediatric oncologist, researcher, associate professor of pediatrics at Oregon Health and Science, a very well-established career for some time. Did you think at that time that was your true calling?
3: I did. I did. When I first started, um, I thought that was my true calling. Um, You know, I I went to medical school with this idea that I wanted to help people. And, you know, I I had all these ideas of working for social justice way back when at that time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to work with kids and so pediatrics made sense. And I wanted to give kids, you know, the opportunity to succeed. That was sort of my, my mission starting out. And, um, and I really thought I would do something where I was maybe working with underprivileged kids, you know, providing medical care. When I got into medicine, I found that, um, you know, I was drawn to where I could have the biggest impact immediately. And that was for the sickest patients. Mm -hmm. And so that's what drew me to oncology, because those are the patients that, you know, immediately once you get the cancer diagnosis, you know, those kids are fighting for their lives. And um, so I was really drawn to that. And I, when I, that was what drew me to the field. And when I got into it, um, I really got into the the idea of doing research to try to make treatments better for these kids. And, um, and, you know, it, it felt like that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, yeah, but sometimes, you know, your, your thoughts and ideas change. And that's what happened to me.
0: And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Take me through what led you to pursue a law degree.
3: Well, so I, I you know, this, this whole social justice and idea of working to combat inequality um, never left me even when I was doing pediatric oncology and doing direct patient care, um, you know, in that field, you know, it's it's a equal opportunity. You know, cancer just affects everybody the same. So, and, and we were able to treat everybody the same, but I could see that, you know, all the things that I was seeing in the world outside of my work were continuing to bother me. And um, I can't say that there was one particular thing that, led me to want to change but I just over the years I I continued to you know be bothered by all this inequality I was seeing and felt like I wanted to do something about it and it, and it took me probably about five years to make the decision and then come to law school so I, I thought about other ways that I could try to um, you know have an impact you know I tried to do some things on the side, you know, continuing my medical work, but that didn't feel like I was doing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought about going back and teaching middle middle school um, as a way to help young people, underprivileged young people succeed. But then I thought like, what I really want to do is to try to make change, make change to the system and not be working with individuals necessarily, um, which felt like more like, you know, you're putting a Band-Aid on things. Mm-hmm. And so, I you know thought about different ways that I could you know make change and um, through the law you know as I really started thinking about it reading talking to people um, law seemed to be the way that you can have the um, the power and the skills to make those that type of change
0: when you talk about you are seeing so many instances or things that were bothering you as it relates to social justice, uh, can you give me an example or just a whole lot of? You know? Just
3: a whole lot of things. I mean, it started with, you know, we, we've all, I think, been affected by seeing some of the violence against young Black people, you know, particularly young, young Black men in these images that we see more in the media. You know, starting with, you know, the Tamir Rice, um, And, you know, Eric Garner and all the, you know, around that time, that's around probably the time I started thinking about these. things. Some of it, you know, to be honest, you know, I I was, I was working, you know, with dozens of people, you know, working on life and death issues and combating what are, you know, natural sort of diseases that happen. And then I started to think about, well, so much death and destruction is happening because of what humans are doing. What we're doing to each other. And, you know, I thought, I just started thinking about why are we working so hard to combat these sort of rare diseases, when we're not even, you know, doing the basic things to like, not kill each other, right?
0: So just all these things that have been happening. So let me ask you this, as you told family and friends about the decision to attend law school, what were the responses you received?
3: Yeah, so um, well, first of all, I, my my sister is a lawyer here in Atlanta. She was a public defender, uh, juvenile public defender with Fulton County for many years, and now she's a professor at John Marshall. And so I talked to her about it, and you know, um, I thought the response I would get <laughs> from lawyers is, you know, don't do it. It's you know, it's you know, it, it, it's a it's a hard job and that type of thing. But she was very encouraging. She said, you know, it's just three years, you can do it. And so she was very encouraging. So that was a that was a big step forward. And then I ended up um, speaking to some people in Portland, some lawyers, um, just reaching out. I just cold emailed a law professor at Lewis and Clark and talked to her about what I was thinking. And she was very encouraging. Um, I think the biggest thing, and I this would be my advice for anybody that's thinking about doing this is to have a really understanding spouse or partner who you have a good relationship with.
0: (laughs) So, Uh, so, so when you told your spouse, what was that reaction?
3: Um, you know, she was, she was a little skeptical, but she didn't come out and discourage me. You know, she, she went along with it. And to set the stage of this, so we had um, we had been married for maybe about six months. Um, she, no, in February at nine months, she was about three months pregnant. Um, we had moved into our house maybe ten months ago, and um, and I told her I had this idea of thinking about going to law school. <laughs> Did she say what? <laughs> And she, did, she didn't do that. She was just nodded her head and she sort of, I think maybe she thought I was just, you know, I was just talking out loud and having a midlife crisis. Um, but, you know, a few months later, I started studying for the LSAT. So she saw that I was, I was serious about it. And, um, and she, she went along with it. She, um, I, you know, and part of it is, I think she believes everything that I believe. Um, and she believes that what I plan to do is important. And that's also a key Um. Is it and and you know she believes that um that I can do something with this law degree to you know to impact the world and so
0: if you're just joining us I'm in conversation with Emory University Law School graduate Suman Malapati. And he is this week's closer look graduate profile. Now you had you had the experience of, of knowing what it takes to get through medical school and now here you are <laughs> three years at the law school. Gotta ask you. Was one tougher than the other? Um. Well,
3: medical school was tougher Mm -hmm. for lots of reasons. The the primary reason is because I just wasn't as motivated back then. You know, I was, I was twenty something and had all of these other ideas on my mind and I wasn't you know you're still trying to figure out who you are and Mm -hmm. so I I wasn't as motivated but there's some there's some things about medical school just the hours sometimes the hours that you're there at the hospital when you're doing your clinical rotations that are harder um just physically harder
0: so tell our audience about just this journey these last three years in in pursuing your your law degree Um, what's been your takeaway so far
3: Um, I've, well, I've loved learning about the law. Um, I find that, that it really suits the way my brain works. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. I've really had some great professors that I've, I've learned from. I've also gotten to have a lot of great experiences here in Atlanta I got to work with the the Barton Child Policy Clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to work with Senator Elena Parent um, at the state capitol, um, who's amazing and doing great things. Um, I got to work with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Um, I got to work at the DeKalb Public Defender's Office. Um, And maybe one of the highlights is I got to uh, intern with Judge Amy Totenberg of the Northern District of Georgia um, during my the summer after my first year of law school.
0: So Suman, is your medical career in the past now?
3: Right now, my plan is to move forward full on with my, uh, with my law career. And mm-hmm. I, I essentially said that I was retiring from medicine. And when I left in you know, 2018, my coworkers threw me a retirement party you know, I was, I was pretty young to be retiring. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's my, my plan is to,
0: is to be a full-time lawyer. And you want to work in the area of civil rights, social justice?
3: That's, that's right. And uh, I'm figuring out exactly how that's going to look. But um, I, we're going back to Oregon, um, which is where I moved here from. And mm-hmm. I'm going to clerk for a federal judge there for a couple of years. And then, um, what I'm hoping to do is some civil rights um, litigation, um, and then see where my career takes me from there. This is a new chapter
0: for you. You ready?
3: I'm ready. I'm excited. You know, I I'm excited because I'm motivated by by the issues and what I plan to do and what I hope to impact. But I'm also just, it's, um, it's thrilling to be at my age and to be able to start from the beginning, to start a new career and have something to look forward to. And, you know, it's gonna be some, some new things that I'm gonna to continue to learn. You know, I, I still have, you know, I'm finishing school, but I still have so much to learn. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and it, it's always exciting to, to be in that position where you're, where you're constantly learning. And so on that note, as we wrap up, what is your message for someone who's listening about starting a new chapter, even if it's you're advanced in age beyond the 20, 20 something year olds out there, what do you say to them? Well,
3: um, you know, I would say don't, don't do it lightly. You know, again, I spent years thinking about what the right thing to do was and whether it was right to make this change, but you know, don't also discount it if you have the if you have some ideas of things that you want to do, and and think about how you can make it work. You know what you do is going to impact the people around you. Of course, you have to think about your family, um, and whether everyone's going to,
1: you know, if, if any if you're going to hurt other
3: people, then you have to make sure that you're, you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, but it, it's you can do, you know, the, don't be limited by. What you create in your mind as something that you feel like you have to keep doing, um, you know, it's your life. You get to you get to choose what you want to do. Um, so just because you've been doing the same thing for, you know, so many years, you don't have to keep doing it if it if it's if the, there's something else that you
0: want to do. That is great advice. Emory University Law School graduate Suman Malapati. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Congratulations again, and best of luck to you and your family.
3: Thank you. I, I appreciate it, Rosa. Again, I, I love your show. Um, I'm, this is one of the things we're going to miss about leaving Georgia.
0: Well, you can just go online. <laughs> WAB.org. Right, I will. <laughs> the time difference, but uh, forward to seeing what comes next for you. So let's make sure we all stay in touch. I'd love to. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Uh, Great conversation. I love this time of year when we get to profile area graduates. By the way, congratulations to all of you out there who are graduating. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. If you missed any of today's program, it's online, just like I told Suman, at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.